Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you so much for drawing us together. And as always, I pray that I'd not get in your way, but that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to our study in the book of Esther. This book of the Old Testament has the distinction of being the only book of Scripture that doesn't mention God's name. And yet, His invisible presence and His unchanging love for His people are felt throughout its ten chapters. I hope you'll be as encouraged as I have been in studying it and praying about it. I believe God will have much to teach us about how to deal with unexpected trials and how we can find Him even in the midst of frightening circumstances that don't make sense. If you've studied the book of Daniel with me in the past, you'll remember that in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked Judah, taking many captive. Daniel and his three friends were among them. This first wave of exiles consisted of all of the nobility of Judah, but there would be two other occasions over the next 19 or so years when this would be repeated, with more and more of the people of Judah being taken each time as captives to Babylon. The final group of exiles was carried away in 586 BC, and it was then that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, though some Jewish people did remain in the land at that time. One of those who remained was the prophet Jeremiah, who had been calling the people to prepare for exile for many years, and he continued to do so until the very end. In fact, Jeremiah wrote a letter to the Jews in Babylon who'd been taken captive in the first waves of captivity that was filled with a message of encouragement from the Lord. We find the text of the letter in Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 14. Let's look at what God said to them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God begins by revealing that he had carried them into exile. Nebuchadnezzar may have been his human instrument, but it had been God's hand that removed his people from the land because of their many years of disobedience. And then, speaking directly about their captivity in Babylon, the Lord said that while they were there, they were to build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The Lord told them to make lives for themselves in this foreign land. In fact, it seems that he wanted his people to flourish there, even though they were in captivity. 
He also wanted them to pray for their oppressors, for if the Babylonians prospered, they would prosper too. In verses 8 and 9, God warned them against listening to false prophets who were saying exactly the opposite. He continued in verse 10, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God promised that their captivity would last for 70 years and that when they'd finally turn to him, seeking him with all their hearts and calling upon him in prayer, he would answer and he would bring them back from all the places he'd scattered them, back to the very place from which he'd exile them. Here we see an important biblical principle at work, that restoration is always preceded by repentance. This principle has been woven into scripture from the very beginning. You see, sin separates us from God, but if we're willing to turn from our wicked ways back to him and ask his forgiveness, the Lord promises to restore our relationship with him. He will be with us. Over those next 70 years, the Jewish people lived under several Babylonian kings, and then a group of people known as the Medes and the Persians defeated Babylon and took control of their empire. The Persian king Cyrus eventually allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and their city, just as God had promised. And much of that story is found in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. However, it's important for us to understand that not all the Jews chose to go back to their homeland. Some chose to stay. For example, there's no record of Daniel ever going back to Jerusalem, and many believe that he was likely too old to travel. The Jews we encounter here in the book of Esther had remained behind in what was now Persia, and their story occurs after many of their countrymen had already gone home. However, I don't think their staying was out of disobedience to God. The Lord had a purpose in it all, as we shall see later. In Esther chapter 1, the unknown author of the book recounts, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces 
were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. The story of Esther begins with food and festivities, literally with a banquet fit for a king. Xerxes was the son of the famed Persian king Darius I, who's mentioned in Daniel chapter 6. In some translations of scripture, he is called Ahasuerus, which was a title given to him in the Hebrew texts of the Old Testament. At the time of this incident, the Persian Empire was enormous, covering over 127 provinces that included the areas now known as Turkey, as well as Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel. And it even encompassed areas of modern-day Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Saudi Arabia. Xerxes was a man of vast wealth and power, and yet he wasn't content with all that he had. Many scholars believe that the displays and celebrations described here were a part of the king's preparations for an invasion of Greece. He brought all the leaders of his empire to the palace and wined and dined them over the course of 180 days, missing no opportunity to impress with his wealth and power. Along the way, of course, they likely learned of the money and troops Xerxes would require from each of them for the immense army he needed for the invasion. And then he closed his six-month display of power and wealth with a lavish seven-day feast in the gardens of the palace. No expense was spared. Wine flowed freely, and we're told in verse 10 that On the seventh day of the feast, when Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Xerxes was well known for his appetites, 
his harsh temper, and his immorality. And when he drunkenly commanded that Queen Vashti be brought in wearing her royal crown, she refused to come. And scripture says he burned with anger. He was not used to hearing the word no from anyone. I want to pause for a moment to consider what Vashti did. Surely she knew that non-compliance might cost her her life, and one has to wonder why she would risk such a thing. Several scholars suggest that perhaps the king expected her to wear only her royal crown and nothing else, and that Vashti simply did not want to be put on display before a group of drunken men. But there may have been another reason. According to Jewish tradition, Vashti was the daughter of the Babylonian king Belshazzar, who'd been killed on the very night that the Medes and the Persians had invaded Babylon. Some rabbis believe that Vashti was captured by the conquering Persians and later given to Xerxes as a wife, and she refused to appear before him because she believed the king was going to parade her before all of his friends as a reminder of the spoils of past wars. The scriptures don't make it clear, but as the king and his men had been feasting and drinking for seven days, I think it's safe to say that they did not have noble intentions in calling Vashti to the party. They surely planned to humiliate her one way or another. Vashti's very public refusal to obey the king threatened all his work of the past six months. What would those he was trying to lead into battle think of him? It made him seem weak. What kind of ruler could he claim to be when he wasn't even able to command his own wife? What would the tyrant do? Well, verse 13 says... Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. You know, given his terrible temper, it is really surprising that Xerxes did not order the death of Vashti at once, but rather he took the matter up with his counsellors. In the following verses, one of them, his name being Memucan, spoke up and declared that in disobeying the king, Vashti had wronged all the people of the land. He and his colleagues feared that the women of Persia would hear of Vashti's refusal to obey her husband and that they too might be persuaded to despise their own husbands, bringing about no end of trouble and strife throughout the entire kingdom. So the councillors suggested the king issue a decree according to the laws of Persia and Medea that Vashti be permanently banished from the king's presence. This was very serious because you see an edict written according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians could never be revoked. It was unchangeable, even by the king. 
So the law was written and made known throughout the land and in all the provincial languages of the people that he ruled over. Many Bible scholars believe that this was one of the last things that Xerxes did before he left on his campaign against Greece. Chapter 2 mentions nothing of his war, but time had very evidently passed because it does say, later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Xerxes' invasion of Greece in 480 BC ended in humiliating defeat when a handful of men from Sparta stopped and delayed his mighty army at the pass of Thermopylae. Later that same year, his navy of 14 hundred ships was unable to overcome a small fleet of just 380 Greek ships at the Battle of Salamis. And in 479 BC, with the bulk of his Persian army destroyed, Xerxes' invasion of Greece was finally brought to an end. With his ambitions in tatters, the humiliated Xerxes returned home in defeat, and having had time to reflect on his actions, his mind turned to Vashti. He almost seems to regret what he'd done to his queen, but there was absolutely nothing he could do about it. The law could not be changed. His advisers acted quickly, lest he blame them for his situation, and suggested a nationwide search be made for beautiful young virgins. Historians point to the fact that the Persian custom of the time said that the king could only ever marry another Persian, but apparently tradition was set aside by Xerxes' wicked advisers, both so as to distract him and preserve their own lives. What unspeakable horror this must have caused among all the beautiful young women of Persia who were forcibly taken from their homes and turned over to the eunuch in charge of the king's harem. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that this was merely like a Miss Persia beauty contest. These poor young women had no choice in the matter. The king would use them for his pleasure one each night as they came to his bed. Then they would return to the harem with no promise of ever seeing him again or becoming his queen. They became his property with no means of escape. As concubines, they had no more rights than one of Xerxes' dogs. The writer now introduces us to one of these young women caught up in the events of the time, the beautiful young Hebrew woman who is the subject of our story, 
Verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin, named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she'd neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when his father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge over the harem. She pleased him and won his favour, so immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Living in Xerxes' capital city of Susa, there was a Jew known by the Babylonian name of Mordecai. Now, you may remember from the account of Daniel and his three friends that many Jews were renamed by their captors. We learn later that Mordecai was some sort of official for the king, and though we don't know his Jewish name, He came from the tribe of Benjamin and had been taken captive from Judah in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Mordecai had a young relative named Hadassah, whom he'd raised as his own daughter after her parents died. Hadassah was a beautiful young woman, as her Hebrew name implies. It meant myrtle, an evergreen tree with beautiful white star-shaped flowers that were often used for perfume. The myrtle tree is also often referenced in scripture as being a symbol of peace and of God's blessing. So her Hebrew name had another significance as well, because her destiny was to secure peace and blessing for God's people in the Persian Empire. But more of that later. Because of Mordecai's position in the court, he was likely one of the first to hear of the king's search. And although we're not told, I'm sure he would have been careful to hide Hadassah from the king's commissioners in an effort to protect her. At the very least, we're told he warned Hadassah against revealing who her people were and where she came from. Whatever the case, she was scooped up and handed over to the eunuch by the name of Haggai, who was in charge of the king's women in the palace harem. God granted her favor in that dreadful place, as we're told that having won the approval of Haggai, she was not only given special treatment, but he assigned her seven female attendants and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. By this, we really understand that Haggai probably shortened the normal one-year stay in the house of women for Esther, and that he moved her as quickly as possible into the rotation to spend the night with the king. 
We'll pick up there in the story next week, but as I conclude, I really want us to consider what it must have been like to be Hadassah. Though we're not told how her parents had died, surely this young girl had known suffering in her short life, and yet she'd also known joy in the care of her relative. Mordecai had a good reputation and some influence as one of the king's officials. And although the king may have been a frightening tyrant, Hadassah innocently gave no thought to that wider world as she was safe in her relative's care. Her whole life lay ahead of her. Who would she marry? How many children did she hope to have? I'm sure that there seemed to be a world of possibilities for this beautiful young woman. That was, of course, before they began to go from house to house to find young women for the king to use as his own. Did she pray as she spent night after night apart from her family? Did she wonder what was going to happen to her as she underwent the preparations of the harem? Did she have any idea of the Lord's purpose in what she was going through? I mention this because I think it's something we can really learn from. There will be times in life when the road we face is not one we want to go down, and we will struggle to understand God's purposes. We may even question his love for us, but at times like that, we need to remember Hadassah. Because though her life certainly took a turn for the worse, entering Xerxes' palace as a prospective concubine, we shall soon find out that God had greater plans for that innocent, frightened young Jewish woman. He has greater plans for you, too. And though they may certainly be different than his plans for Esther, he'll use you nonetheless, and it'll be because of what you've been through not in spite of it. The story of Esther teaches us a valuable lesson. Even when it looks like God is not with you, he remains faithful to his promise. So trust him with courage and conviction. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.